If you get on the Piccadilly line past a certain time of night, you might just be lucky enough to run into Nick. London Underground trains aren't particularly friendly to unlicensed buskers, so we don't get the endless brass bands and showtime performers that appear on the New York Metro and other systems. But Nick is an exception. You hear him making his way along the platform before you see him, his tambourine and the bells he wears around his legs announcing his arrival. And then, if you're lucky, he'll get on your carriage and dance for you. Nick doesn't talk, but he gave me permission to record a little of one of his performances for this episode. That's what you're listening to now. He's always dressed a little bizarrely, somewhere between a Morris dancer and an early 90s acid house hangover, with a pair of deer antlers slung over his shoulders and a series of peace and love buttons running down each one of his rainbow-coloured suspenders. His dance is a fairly simple one. He steps up to the centre of the carriage, knocks his tambourine on the central pole, and then skips back again, four or five times. Call it a dance, but it's more of a ritual. Afterwards, I always feel a little lighter, a little more cheerful about my evening. I've been getting the Piccadilly line for years, and Nick's been here as long as I have, always late at night, and always just as full of placid energy as the first time I saw him. Part of the reason he's been able to keep going so long is that he isn't actually a busker. He never asks for money, just an audience, and even the sacred bubble of personal space all Londoners project on the tube isn't impervious to his calming presence. When I decided I wanted to do an episode about Nick, I mentioned him to my dad. I didn't have to explain much. He knew Nick immediately. My dad told me about how Nick would appear late at night, dancing and spreading his message of peace and unity to all the commuters, filling everyone he met with an unexpected sense of well-being. In fact, he told me, he'd taken a photo of Nick one night when he was much younger, using the big clunky SLR he used to carry around with him. He showed me the photograph, and I compared it to the photo I'd taken on my phone a few nights previously. It was uncanny. Were it not for the different adverts and the old-style tube trains, they could have been taken moments apart. From the antlers slung over his shoulders, down to his rainbow-coloured suspenders, every detail about this joyful spirit on the Piccadilly line was identical. The man in the photos, I would hazard in his late fifties, had not aged a single day in the intervening years. I turned over the photo to see the date on the back. December 9th, 1973. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. London Underground is a surprisingly organic beast, formed as it is from a dozen or so separate lines which have gradually been bought up and amalgamated under what's now known as Transport for London. The private companies which began the process were notorious for their disregard for the safety of the miners who dug the tunnels, who were known as navvies, short for navigators, a term borrowed from the canal building industry which many of them got their start in. An industrial accident in June of 1862 flooded the still-under-construction Metropolitan Railway with the River Fleet, making the canal connection even more obvious, and that's one of the less lethal accidents which took place in the early tube. Workers were killed by exploding steam boilers, by under-engineered train brakes, by falling timbers, and by straightforward tunnel collapse. We don't have a reliable number of these deaths, largely because it was considered routine in the days before unions forced through better working conditions. 
London transport was nationalised after World War II, as part of the same wave of social democratic reforms which gave us the NHS. The development of the modern tube as a complete coherent network really took off in the 50s, 60s and 70s, as lines were merged and new ones built to serve upcoming areas. The Jubilee and Victoria lines both date from this time of public investment, as well as service extensions to Brixton and Heathrow Airport. Londoners who had grown up sheltering from the Blitz in tube station bomb shelters were now charged with rebuilding it to meet the needs of the rapidly changing city, and wherever the tube went, so too did people in business. The modern financial stronghold of Canary Wharf owes a measure of its success to investment in the tube, which connected the muddy peninsula known as the Isle of Dogs to the city by way of an extension to the Jubilee Line in late 1999. Nationalisation was partially undone in 2000 by the Blair era push towards public-private partnerships, or PPPs, which forced Transport for London to work closely with companies motivated by profit rather than service. I could run through the contract wrangling and the billions of pounds wasted on this failed experiment, but we're just getting started, and I don't want to send you to sleep just yet. The important takeaway is that a service as sprawling and effective as the London Underground needs to be run for people rather than for shareholder profit, and that's fundamentally incompatible with the goals of the private sector. Despite that, the neoliberal wolf at the door constantly looms over London's greatest asset, and every few years there'll be another policy paper from some conservative think tank demanding that the Underground be fully privatised, beckoning it into the pool of liquid money so it can be strip-mined for profit by finance vultures looking to break the city's bones for a buck. The distributed nature of the London Underground's early construction means that there are a lot of tunnels and stations which are now empty or abandoned, made redundant by the merging of competing rail lines. The most famous of these is Aldwych, previously known as The Strand, which lies beneath King's College London and which has been the filming location for hundreds of films and TV shows, owing to the extremely reduced service even prior to its ultimate closure in 1994. If you've ever seen a sequence which takes place on a tube platform, chances are you're looking at a set-dressed version of Aldwych. You can book tours of the empty station these days and take a walk through the quiet tunnels, past all the old adverts and the detritus of the city's grandest dead end. The train track itself is still connected to Hoburn up the way, and there's also a tunnel which leads from there up towards Green Park, part of the original design for the Jubilee line before it was routed through Westminster and Waterloo instead. These tunnels are where they filmed the video for the Prodigy's Firestarter, if you want to go take a look on YouTube. Speaking of dead ends, I couldn't forgive myself if I didn't take this opportunity to bring up the London Necropolis Railway, a former funeral train which ran directly from Waterloo to Brookwood Cemetery from 1854 to 1941. Due to the lack of grave space in central London, large graveyards were set up surrounding the capital, and the idea of the funeral train followed. Carriages were even split by class to ensure wealthy corpses were treated with greater respect than those of the proles. At some point, probably in season two, if I'm feeling bold, I'll do a whole episode about the business of burial in London. But for now, I really strongly encourage you to Google for the logo of the London Necropolis and National Mausoleum Company, since it's maybe the most badass thing I've seen in my entire life. When the deep-level tube lines were constructed, all the different competing companies involved had one significant thing in common. The design of the tunnels themselves. In previous episodes, I've spoken extensively about the London clay and how it seeps sturdy but inevitable into every project built beneath the city. There's only really one way to combat that when doing long-distance tunnelling, and it's by way of the vaults and pipes design philosophy. To put it simply, 
If you can see the walls of the tunnel from inside a train, you're in a pipe section. If you can't, and you're staring out into the darkness of a large underground space, you're in a vault. The underground tunnels alternate between these two styles due to how you're forced to work in the London clay. Tunnelling isn't done by way of blasting holes in the rock or chipping away with pickaxes. It's done by first digging wide open chambers with conventional construction equipment, and then manually digging or corkscrew drilling the slopping mass of clay backwards towards these chambers, from which it can be more easily removed. In the dense central London section, the station platforms themselves served as the vaults in which huge piles of wet clay would be deposited before being ferried up to ground level, but there are regular vault sections peppered all over the tube map. Albridge Station is one of the vaults used to clear materials from the drilling process, an important one at that. It's the original terminal station of the line which predates the modern-day Piccadilly, running up through Hoburn, King's Cross and out to Finsbury Park. When it was originally dug, it was a major loading terminal for tunnel work elsewhere, which means that a vast amount of the city's firmament has moved through this station, which is, in turn, connected by one tunnel or another to almost every other line in London. The Aldwych is also roughly where the City of London meets the boroughs of Westminster and Camden, a plumb line into the earth, marking the division point between three competing versions of the city. It now sits empty like the eye of a storm, the focal point of hundreds of ley lines and pilgrimages beneath the earth, the centre of a great summoning circle which winds and twists its angry way across the southeast. The rough beast does not slouch towards Bethlehem to be born. It was there all along, waiting below the earth for the right incantation, or perhaps the right sacrifice. Tunnel-bound vault sections are now rarely seen by anyone except workers on repair jobs, and even they try to avoid stepping in them for long. They're famously confusing to navigate if you leave the safety of the tracks, no matter how well you light them, and dozens of shift workers have gone missing over the years, wandering from the tracks and disappearing into the surrounding darkness. Sometimes you can see other train carriages passing in the distance in one of these vaults, blurring into invisibility. These phantom trains run all night, to and from destinations unknown, through forgotten tunnels which don't appear on any map. TFL recruits are put through a rigorous psychological examination prior to being sent underground, with preference for those with a predilection towards obedience and a diligent commitment towards tasks as assigned, so as to prevent them from leaving the tracks while on an important job. Those who do are said to have gone to Aldwych, a euphemism for disappearing into the endless dark of the tunnels. Some workers tell of riding the train years later and seeing former colleagues who were reported missing, gazing in through the darkened windows, silently mouthing words impossible to make out as they zip by in the permanent underground night. If you've been riding the London Underground and found yourself unable to think straight, personally, I find it impossible to listen to narrative podcasts on my commute if I'm going underground. Something about the screaming tracks and the jolting rails makes anything more complicated than a long drum and bass mix absolutely incomprehensible to me. I keep rolling back and starting over, retracing my steps, distracted, lost. It's not just the noise, either. The darkness outside of a tube window is hypnotic somehow. I feel it calling out to me sometimes, yawning hungrily, like staring into the open mouth of a whale as it swims straight at you. There's a sharp bank in the tracks on the Piccadilly line between Knightsbridge and South Kensington. 
When the tunnel was being built back in 1905, the navvies found themselves unable to drill any further forwards in the middle of a long pipe section, due to some impenetrable mineral seam blocking the path. After a little exploration, they discovered what they were attempting to tunnel clean through was an old burial pit, where thousands of bodies were dumped in an attempt to manage the spread of the bubonic plague in 1665. They called a priest before they called in the engineer. Even with the advances in modern medicine, they knew that the threat of disturbing the prematurely dead was more spiritual than physical. They were forced to swerve around the plague pit, since they were unable to drill through it, hence the twist in the tracks. Strangely, they found that the remains in the pit had fused into one great latticework of bone. All the flesh and clothing had rotted away, leaving only a tangled network of osseous matter, a huge impenetrable cage knotted unbreakably together. A group of academics came in to take a look, and was surprised to find that the pattern of bodies made absolutely no sense. Bones were twisted and woven around each other, curved taut but unbroken, like some type of nightmarish craft project which had formed organically beneath the ground. They sent a lantern into the mesh, feeding it through on a cable so they could see better, but could only get a few feet in before the weave became too impossibly dense to navigate. One of them lost a hand when she reached inside to retrieve it, and the lattice snapped abruptly shut on her like a steel trap. Research was halted shortly after. Before they covered it back up, workers reported sounds coming from within. A strange whistling, like wind through a half-open door, although with no obvious point of origin. The noise echoed and carried through the tunnels like a siren call, faintly audible as far away as Liverpool Street, and a dozen track crew went missing in the vaults that week wandering into the darkness, never to return. In almost every religious tradition, sound takes on a sacred aspect. Whether it's raising your voice in hymn, the beating of ceremonial drums, or the ringing of meditative bells, the idea of directed sound being used to channel a higher power is a constant across human spiritual practice. Music can be used to invoke a trance-like state of ecstatic reverie, and although sceptics have explained away these practices as no different to the way rock concerts or action films turn up the volume during climactic moments, I'm disinclined to take such an easy explanation. Every new year, I make a point of smacking together saucepans and running around yelling at the stroke of midnight, with apologies to my neighbours, to scare off any negative spirits which might be lingering from the previous year. In these blighted political times, ritual has become more important to me than ever, since all the science and reason I clung to as a teenager seems to have failed me. The rainforest burns regardless. It might seem strange to invoke the idea of sacred noise on the tube, given the constant beating and crashing of the rails in the background, but there's definitely something to it. The archetypal religious music, to me, has to encompass a mixture of automation, ritual, and interpretation, the human aspect. Hymns are set texts, but a recording won't do. The bell must be rung once every minute, but a machine won't do. The drums may beat repetitiously for hours, but an NPC alone won't do. 
There's a theory that human musical forms are heavily influenced by the soundscapes we encounter in our daily lives, with Black Sabbath's chugging guitars mirroring the industrial mechanical sound of 1960s Birmingham and the squawking mid-bass of late-era dubstep stemming from electrical modems winding up in the early noughties. The sound alone isn't enough, though. We need the human to make it real, to imbue it with the sacred aspect. That, I believe, is what separates what Nick does on the Piccadilly line from the clanging and crashing of the trains. Some bells and a tambourine are nothing, alone. But in the long, empty dark of the underground, who can say what grim spirits are warded away? I was riding the Piccadilly line late one night, on the way back home from central London, when I found my mind wandering. I dozed off somewhere around Hoban, and when I awoke, we were stopped between stations. I felt like I'd slept for a long time, and the train was empty, the lights flickering on and off as they sometimes do on the night tube. We were in a long vault section, and I couldn't see the walls around me. The LED displays were malfunctioning, showing Aldwych as the next station, which I knew was impossible in any direction. I stretched and leant forward, squinting at my reflection in the window opposite. Except, not my reflection. A different set of eyes stared back at me. Outside the window, equidistant from where I sat, another version of me was looking in. The perspective shifted and I could see myself, perched bent-legged in a mirror version of the tube train. The angle was wrong, though. The other me was wearing a ragged version of my work clothes, sitting with his spine bent like a bow pulled taut towards me and his eyes empty, gazing directly into my own, completely unnervingly still. And he wasn't alone. I could only see them in my peripheral vision, since I couldn't tear my attention away from my doppelganger, but dozens of others were in the phantom car. All were sat in the same uncomfortable looking stress position, crouched on the seat, knees together, spines curved forwards, hands desperately gripping the armrests, an unnerving stillness over the scene, dressed in fatigues and high-vis gear and business suits and summer dresses and children's clothes and coveralls and all bones and sinew and wind whistling through their endless empty staring eye sockets and... heard him before I saw him. A soft tapping at first. Bells. A tambourine. A gentle hand on my shoulder. Nick beat out a steady rhythm, his shuffling dance rising in my ears as the light on the scene outside seemed to fade. The train started moving again. I knew I was safe. Despite psychological screening, TFL workers tend to accumulate superstitions, and one of the most persistent is a reassuring tale they tell to new recruits when the first of their colleagues goes to Aldwych and doesn't return. This city, they insist, balances itself in ways we can't understand. 
for every tragic loss, for every person taken by the night, an equal and opposite reaction creates something new to protect us. We do not walk alone in the Undercity. Kind spirits walk with us, and they will preserve us, if we give them the chance. next episode of Subterraneans, I take a look at the super basements of the millionaires in Kensington and Hampstead, and reconnect with the remains of the Fellowship of Subterraneans. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subterpod on Twitter, or by email through subterpod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please rate it on your network of choice and leave a comment, or even better, share it with your friends or on social media. I've got the SoundCloud app on my phone, and I'm not too proud to admit I've been obsessively watching the numbers go up, so if you can contribute to that, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Mm